Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. In our second excerpt from the documentary The Occupation of the American Mind, Israel's 1982 attack on Lebanon and the massacre of hundreds of Palestinians at Sabra and Shatila refugee camps forces Israel to adopt a robust strategy of propaganda called Hasbara. That's the basic Hasbara strategy in a nutshell. Even when you're violently crushing resistance to your own brutal occupation, portray Israel as an innocent victim by demonizing Palestinians as nothing but terrorists. And a new book offers the untold story of Israel and of Palestinian resistance. The Palestinians display a different kind of heroism, and it's a heroism of steadfastness, of refusing to leave. Even though the Zionist regime, the Israeli regime, the occupation makes life miserable, or tries to make life miserable for you every day. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And we have a jam-packed show for you today. I'll be speaking with Richard Becker, author of the new second edition of his book, Palestine, Israel, and U.S. Empire. And we'll hear another excerpt from the documentary, The Occupation of the American Mind. For our headlines, we're pleased to be joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. But I think that he is in some other kind of tropical climate right now. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And yes, I'm speaking to you from Honolulu, Hawaii, doing research, of course. Oh, absolutely. Well, there was momentous news this week. And I guess we should start with the International Court of Justice. We know that Israel is supposed to report back today on the historic case of genocide. But leading up to today, dozens of countries from around the world testify on the illegality of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. Tremendous statements made. And I couldn't help but think with all these countries coming forth that these hearings and these statements were an important indictment of, of settler colonialism and really the ethnic cleansing and apartheid conditions that Israel has subjected the Palestinians to for more than 75 years. Indeed. And in fact, the ICJ's latest case with regard to Israel focuses not on the South Africa case, which, as you noted, the Israelis are compelled to report Friday, February 23rd, 2024, about what they've done to remove the conditions that led the ICJ to suggest that there was a plausible case for genocide that they could be charged with. This current case deals with the occupation. And what's remarkable about that is that it represents this tidal wave of public opinion globally 
going against Israel, you might have noticed that the president of Brazil, speaking of Lula da Silva, analogized to what Israel was doing in Gaza as we speak to what the Nazis did in the 1930s and 1940s. That led to a rift in diplomatic relations between Brazil and Israel. But remarkably, his words were echoed by the leader of Colombia, President Petro, the leader of Bolivia, President Arce. And this, once again, is emblematic of the ragged Israeli posture in the international community where fundamentally, but for the United States of America, the tide would have turned altogether against Israel by now, particularly with regard to the massacres that it's perpetrating uh, in Gaza. I should also say that the U.S., speaking of the U.S. Congress, is seeking to retaliate against South Africa. There is an ongoing reexamination of U.S. relationships uh, with South Africa, including the African Growth and Opportunity Act, which there has been talk about ousting South Africa from its mandate. But South Africa is not a paltry economy. And in any event, South Africa is part of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, which is the rising power on the international scene. And so it's unclear how the United States and Israel will retaliate against South Africa. But given the fact that there are elections taking place within weeks in South Africa and the U.S. press is full of headlines about how there is an expectation that the majority of the African National Congress that it holds in the parliament and locally will decline, uh, perhaps uh, we should pay close attention to these elections. Although I dare say that the U.S. and its allies need to realize that if the majority of the ANC declines, it won't necessarily be due to a surge in one of the center-right parties, such as the so-called Democratic Alliance, the uh, neo-apartheid policy, it'll probably be on behalf of the economic freedom fighters, uh, which styles itself as being to the left of the ANC. And of course, it's talking about uh, marching on the U.S. embassy and closing down the U.S. embassy in Pretoria. So mm-hmm. Israel is facing a difficult uphill climb. The economy is collapsing. A good deal of northern Israel has been abandoned because of rockets from Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. We all know about the virtual abandonment of southern Israel abutting Gaza. So the prognosis is not very bright for the so-called Zionist state. Your description of what's happening actually on the ground in Israel reminds me, and we didn't talk about this before, but it reminds me to switch just for a moment to talk about Russian forces overrunning this key site Avdivka in Ukraine and how the poor reporting on Ukraine has really caught up with corporate media at this point because this was the most heavily fortified Ukrainian position. At least a thousand prisoners of war have been taken by Russia, many wounded Ukrainians evacuated by Russia. And this is a a major turning point for that conflict. But you don't really hear that in corporate media. And then I think you also want to talk about Navalny, the the death of the Russian dissident. 
Well, speaking of the passing away of Mr. Navalny, his death and the coverage of same and the corporate media was quite revealing in terms of what was omitted. And this is also a case study on why the corporate media is collapsing. Uh, speaking of the Los Angeles Times laying off reporters left and right, speaking of the well-known problems of the Washington Post, despite the funding of billionaire Jeff Bezos. What I'm referring to is that if you look at coverage outside of the United States on the death of Navalny, you'll quickly ascertain and discover that he was notorious for being an Islamophobe to the point that Amnesty International had a rigorous debate about revoking his so-called prisoner of conscious status because of his well-known hate speech for which he never apologized. But given the fact that the corporate media is all in with regard to Russophobia, all in with regard to continuing this misadventure in Ukraine, they decided that this was not news that was fit to print. But it also reveals why they're losing readers and why the future of the media, setting aside artificial intelligence, setting aside the fact that Facebook and Google are gobbling up their advertising revenues, the problem is, is that the corporate media has a profound political problem insofar as they're seemingly much more interested in directing their readers towards neoconservatism or neoliberalism as opposed to just reporting the facts. Right. And I mean, it's become so obvious that it's, uh, well, it's really unwatchable. I don't know if we want to segue to a final topic, which is Julian Assange, two hearings in the High Court of the UK this week to determine if he will be able to appeal a decision to extradite him to the US, where he faces trial for exposing US war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq. Here, I was honored to speak on his behalf at a rally here in DC, but there were rallies in New York and in London and all around the world by people who understand that this is uh, an attack, an essential attack on journalism, that um, he's being prosecuted for doing, for being a journalist, for doing journalism, for telling the truth, for revealing the truth. And also his prosecution is creating this tremendous precedent of not only using the U.S. so-called Espionage Act to target a publisher, but to target a publisher who's not even American. You know, so maybe the U.S. can just run all over the world and and target journalists who report on on the cri crimes of empire. Well, not only that, but it's quite disappointing, although not surprising, that once again, the corporate media is missing in action. After all, the WikiLeaks revelations received oxygen and altitude from the fact that they were distributed and disseminated, many of them at least, through the New York Times and through the Guardian and the London. But you might recall that shortly after there was this collaboration between WikiLeaks and Assange on the one hand and the New York Times on the other, the then New York Times editor, Bill Keller, 
basically threw Assange under the bus. I guess he felt that that would mean that he and his comrades in Manhattan would not face the wrath of the government. But I'm not so sure if that will pan out. And certainly the New York Times, which after all published the Pentagon Papers some decades ago, this so-called secret study about the flailings and failings of U.S. policy in Southeast Asia, uh, they really should have known better with regard to their isolation and attack on Julian Assange, uh, for which they had collaborated uh, quite fruitfully, I might add, uh, some time earlier. But we will see. We will certainly be able to report on this unfolding story. But in the meantime, I've been joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. And one more news item. The SNCC Legacy Project is mounting a campaign to support one of our veteran freedom fighters, Ms. Dory Ladner. And if you want more information about how you can support them in their effort to support Ms. Dory, Mama Dory, as she's known to many of us here in Washington, D.C., veteran of the, the SNCC Freedom Movement. You can go to the SNCC Legacy Project and contact them and see how you can help them as they show solidarity for one of our our warriors uh, as she needs our assistance and love and support. And those are headlines and happenings. Up next, Israel's 1982 attack on Lebanon and the massacre of Palestinians at Sabra and Shatila refugee camps forces Israel to adopt a robust strategy of propaganda called Hasbara. Stay with us. Come, you masters of war. Here that build the big guns. Here that build the death planes. Here that build all the bombs. Here that hide behind walls. Here that hide behind discs. I just don't want you to know I can see through your masks You that never done nothing But build to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain 
There's been another horrendous turn of events in the Middle East. Hundreds of men, women, and children, perhaps as many as a thousand people in all, have been massacred in two Palestinian refugee camps in West Beirut. Israel's Lebanese allies, operating with the consent of the Israeli government, had massacred several thousand Palestinian civilians in the refugee camps of Sabra and Shatila, and American news media had the pictures to prove it. The Israelis permitted an armored column of right-wing Christian gunmen to enter West Beirut late Friday. They took up positions surrounding Shatila refugee camp last night, and this morning they were gone. A bloody massacre which has heightened tensions between the U.S. and Israel. Sabra Shatila was hardly the first massacre committed by Israel against Palestinians and against Arabs. There's a dirty legacy of Israeli massacres from the pre-state through the creation of the state and beyond. The big difference was this one was televised. By all appearances, groups of men had been ordered to stand against the wall and then gunned down in cold blood. Today, Palestinians search frantically for relatives. They took our children, one said. They're killing our families. This was a game changer in terms of how Israel was going to deal with the question of publicity. They went on the offensive for the first time. All the direct or implicit accusations that the IDF bear any blame whatsoever for this human tragedy in the Shatila camp are entirely baseless and without any foundation. The government of Israel rejects them with the contempt which they deserve. It was perhaps the first time they recognized at the highest levels inside Israel how much they needed to do that if they expected to maintain the kind of understood support in the United States. Israel can do no wrong. Israel is always the, the victim. Israel is the little David against the big bad Goliath. Two years after the Lebanon invasion, the American Jewish Congress sponsored a conference in Jerusalem to devise a formal public relations strategy known in Hebrew as Hasbara. Participants included PR and advertising executives, media specialists, journalists, and leaders of major Jewish groups. According to a brochure from the Congress, no single event brought home the need for a more effective Hasbara or information program more persuasively than the 1982 war in Lebanon and the events that followed. As one conference participant put it, Israel is no longer perceived to be Little David, but Goliath steamrolling across the map. The primary aim of the conference was to develop strategies to spin unpopular Israeli policies and to counter negative press coverage by shaping the media frame in advance. News doesn't just jump into a camera, a conference delegate said. It's directed, it's managed, it's made accessible. Israel-based advertising executive Martin Fenton would put it in even more blunt terms. Propaganda is not a dirty word, he said. Face it, we are in the game of changing people's minds, of making them think differently. To accomplish that, we need propaganda. The conference was chaired by U.S. advertising executive Carl Spielvogel, the legendary ad man who created the highly acclaimed Miller Lite beer ads in the 1970s. The choice of Spielvogel makes perfect sense. He's known as a master of image inversion and rebranding. The ad man responsible for transforming Miller Lite, which had been viewed before as a woman's beer, into a manly beer that tough guys would drink. But the best part is that it tastes so great. <laughs> the best part is it's less filling. Nah, it tastes great. Less his job with Israel would require the same kind of rebranding, only in the opposite direction, to help soften the image of a country that's coming to be seen as a bully. So he recommends creating a cabinet post 
dedicated exclusively to explaining policy, whose job would not be setting policy, but presenting it in the most attractive way to the rest of the world. Classic PR is to say the problem is not the policy, it's the presentation. When the policies are so reprehensible that many people become critical, rather than acknowledge there's anything wrong with the policy, there's a doubling down on the PR effort. After Lebanon, you start to see the basic Hasbara strategy in action. Images of Palestinians fighting back against Israel's occupation make their way onto American television screens. And the Israeli military crushes this resistance in brutal ways that undercut Israel's image as underdog and victim. Israeli helicopter gunships deliberately fired a missile into a crowd of civilians last night, killing seven Palestinians and wounding 70 more. Then Israeli officials go into full Hasbara mode and act like the occupation doesn't even exist, framing all Palestinian resistance as terrorism and Israeli aggression as self-defense. We will do whatever it takes to defend ourselves, and defend ourselves we will. That's the basic Hasbara strategy in a nutshell. Even when you're violently crushing resistance to your own brutal occupation, portray Israel as an innocent victim by demonizing Palestinians as nothing but terrorists. And that was a powerful excerpt from the documentary, The Occupation of the American Mind. And so many important points were made about how information about Palestine is sold to us as being about terror and not about territory of the Palestinian people being stolen from them. And in the case of Gaza, living under a total siege of land, water, and air for the past 17 years. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. What a hard times, tales from the dark side, evidence of the settlements on my hard drive. Man, I swear my heart died at the end of that car ride. When I saw that checkpoint, welcome to apartheid. Soldiers wear military green at the checkpoint. Automatic guns, that's machine at the checkpoint. Tables not M16s at the checkpoint. Fingers on the trigger, you'll get leaned at the checkpoint. Little children going to dogs and teens at the checkpoint. All your papers better be clean at the checkpoint. Gotta put your finger on the screen at the checkpoint and pray that red light. Turns green at the checkpoint And Martin Luther King had a dream on the checkpoint He wake with loud screams from the scenes at the checkpoint His Malcolm X by any means at the checkpoint Imagine if your daily routine was the checkpoint And Martin Luther King had a dream on the checkpoint He wake with loud screams from the scenes at the checkpoint His Malcolm X by any means at the checkpoint Imagine if your daily routine was the checkpoint Separation walls that surround in the checkpoint On top is barbed wire like a crown on the checkpoint Better have your permits if you found at the checkpoint, coming on the tower, aiming down at the checkpoint. Idea is to keep you in fear at the checkpoint. Enter through the cage in the rear of the checkpoint. Feels like prison on a tear at the checkpoint. I'd rather be anywhere but here at the checkpoint. Nelson Mandela wasn't blind to the checkpoint. He stood for free Palestine at a checkpoint. Support BDS, don't give a dime to the checkpoint. This is international crime at the checkpoint. Arabs get treated like dogs at the checkpoint. Cause discrimination is the law at the checkpoint. Criminalized without a cause at the checkpoint. I'm just telling you what I saw at the checkpoint. Soldiers got bad attitudes at the checkpoint. Condescending and real rude at the checkpoint. Don't look them in their eyes when they move at the checkpoint. They might strip a man or woman nude at the checkpoint. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. Voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. 
Thank you for being an On the Ground listener. If you're not already a member, please consider joining us on Patreon at P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash On the Ground show. You can also support the show on PayPal and all that information is on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Also, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already subscribed, you know, and like the podcast, give us a good review. All those things will help us to to expand the show. Tell a friend about the show. Thanks for listening. And joining me now is Richard Becker, author of Palestine, Israel, and U.S. Empire, just released by 1804 Books, and this is the second edition. Welcome to On the Ground, Richard. Thanks very much for inviting me. Well, on the show, we've covered this horrific attack on the people of Gaza, and we've made it a point to talk about the Nakba. And that is the, I guess I call it the first genocide in Palestine when three quarters of a million people were expelled from their homes. 500 villages were destroyed. People were murdered, massacred. But what I want to talk to you about today with your book is before that, we also have discussed the Balfour Declaration in 1917 by the British Foreign Secretary, Arthur James Balfour. But to me, there's this kind of this gap between when all that happened and the Nakba and what was the run up to the creation of this place that we call Israel now. So I thought you could help us with that by giving us some of this thorough information you have in your book. Yeah, and we'd be glad to, to try to do that. At the very beginning of the Zionist movement, and its first World Congress was in 1897, it was known to the people who attended that Congress that Palestine was an inhabited area. It was a fully inhabited area. Uh, all the arable land was already under cultivation for the most part. And yet they adopted a slogan, which became the central slogan of the Zionist movement, a land without a people for a people without a land. And you would say, well, how could they say that? Well, the answer to the question, how you can know that a people occupy a land and yet you treat them not as people is really racism. I mean, right. that's what it really boils down to. And the Zionist movement was a very contradictory movement. It had deep contradictions. On the one hand, it was a response by a small section at the beginning of the Jewish population in Europe and the United States to anti-Semitism. The vast majority of politically active Jewish people did not agree with this. They were for fighting for social equality and not for splitting away. Uh, so you had that. And on the other hand, or at the same time, it was a, a European colonial movement that came to be sponsored by Britain, as you mentioned with the Balfour Declaration. And the, another contradiction that it had that made it very different than any other colonizing movement was that the Zionists had no army and no navy. I mean, you can't take over colonies. You can't colonize people. I, they're not going to submit voluntarily. You have to be able to do it by means of force and really by means of terror. And so how could they overcome this problem? And the way that they overcame the problem was after a lot of lobbying, a number of the different empires at that time, they got the British to uh, agree to support through the Balfour Declaration, the creation of what they called a Jewish national home in Palestine. The British did not control Palestine at that time. 
But that Belfort Declaration meant that the Zionist movement now had a sponsor. And without that sponsor, it could not have gone anywhere. And the reasons that the British ruling class decided to support it was they saw the Zionist movement as a conservative, reactionary alternative to socialist and communist movements uh, in which most of the Jewish active Jewish, politically active Jewish population was engaged in. So from a very short time, from Belfort in 1947, you have a now wave after wave of settlement that's coming. And of course, that was exacerbated. The settlement wave was exacerbated by the Nazi genocide. First, the Nazi rule and then Nazi genocide, the horrific murder of millions and millions of Jewish people, uh, Roma, communists, LGBTQ people. And that was what sponsored or caused the sponsorship of these wave after wave uh, beginning in the late 1930s and into the 1940s. And of course, up until the time of 1947, when the UN vote happened. The Palestinian population was against the Zionist movement, of course. There have been a small indigenous Jewish population. There were reportedly no great problems between, you know, the myth that this is all some historical continuation of centuries and millennia of conflict between Muslims and Jews and Christians. That's not what's behind this. So with the support of Britain and with the settlements, which uh, settlement numbers, which grew into still a minority, about 35 percent of the population, the U.N. in 1947, when the U.S. really largely controlled the U.N. and had great influence over a number of the so-called independent states, which were not independent at all, like the Philippines and Haiti and Thailand, was able to push through a partition resolution. The partition resolution awarded 55% of the land of Palestine to the Zionist project, which only owned 6% of the land at the time. 45% was supposedly for the Palestinians with an international zone in Jerusalem. The war broke out. And what really brought about the success of the Zionist project was a strategy of terror. And we talk about this in the book that In the early stage of the war, the war broke out November 29, 1947, when the UN vote happened. But by February, the Zionist leaders were very unhappy because even when they would win most of the battles, they were better armed and far better funded uh, than the Palestinian side. The population would only move over a village or two villages and stay with relatives. And a lot of people had big families. They weren't leaving. And so the Mm. Zionist military leaders and civilian leaders came up with a plan called Plan Dalet, the fourth letter in the, in the Hebrew alphabet. They had three earlier plans that didn't succeed in doing what they wanted to do, which was to drive out the Palestinian population altogether. Mm. And this is what brought about the new stage. And it was marked by Deir Yassin, the Deir Yassin massacre, April 9th of 1948, and then many more massacres that followed. And it became a strategy of terrorism. The Zionist uh, military people would go into villages with loudspeakers and saying, leave or the fate of Deir Yassin will be yours. And the Zionists have atomic bombs and things like this. So this and the roundup and Ilan Pape, the Israeli historian, has estimated that there were at least 200 massacres of men and boys who were deemed to be a fighting age in a village 
they'd be killed, separated from the others, and the women, younger children, elderly men would be driven to a border, whether it was Jordan or Lebanon or Egypt, Syria, and driven out of the country altogether. So it was by means of terror that the state, the Israeli state came into being. Well, I wanted to ask you two things about leading up to that as well. So there was the Balfour Declaration, but the declaration was also accompanied by an agreement made by the colonizing powers during World War I to colonize parts of West Asia, what we now call the Middle East. Could you talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so in, in the beginning of the war, which began in 1914, this was a war of empires. It was the Ottoman Empire, Austro-Hungarian Empire, German Empire against the British Empire, French Empire, the Italian Empire, the Russian Empire, and then later the one major power that didn't call itself an empire but was an empire was the United States, which only came into the war in 1917, two and a half years after it had uh, been going on. And the British, who were very interested, in, and the and French as well, in the, taking over parts of the Middle East, the Ottoman Empire, because this is really a war to divide an almost totally colonized world. They were very interested in that. They had the Suez Canal, which they had jointly sponsored in 1869. And so they met secretly. They met secretly with uh, Arab leaders. Of the Arab national movement was very new. There were monarchs they met with, the Hashemite monarchs, uh, and promised them that if they would enter the war and support the British side against the Ottoman Empire, which then controlled Palestine, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Egypt, uh, that if they did that, then when the war was over, there would be an independent Arab state. But at the same time, the foreign ministers of Britain and France and also Russia, also Italy and Greece, all met and secretly uh, talked about how they would divide the, the Ottoman Empire among themselves. And this was known as the Sykes-Picot Agreement, an infamous agreement, very well known in the Middle East, not known at all in the United States. But this promised that rather than an independent state, that France would get Lebanon and Syria and the northern part of Iraq. The British would take over Palestine, continue their control of Egypt, what became Jordan, Iraq. And so there were, the whole region would be divided up among these empires. And so that is what really did happen, of course. Right. Now, one thing that's not known is that in 1919, just a few months after the end of the war, the delegates came together from Syria, from Palestine, uh, present-day Jordan and Lebanon in Damascus, and de they called it the General Syrian Congress. And they declared a new state, a constitutional monarchy with one of the Hashemite kings, but with a parliament. Uh, it lasted a few months. Then the British let the French come in and, and drowned it in blood. Mm. If that had happened, you know, the whole, you just think, you know, you can't have a counterfactual history. But just think of what it would have meant for, for the whole region if this new state had been allowed to develop. And of course it wasn't. And the intention of the colonizers uh, was, and they continued their, uh, their agenda, which was to exploit the whole area. And for the British, it was the transit scene to, to India, where the great wealth of the British Empire came from. And one last thing about this time period that I want to talk about before we move on is the revolt among the Palestinian people during that time. 
because for many people in this country, there's this idea that Palestinians just let this happen and didn't fight back or weren't capable of mounting any type of resistance. There was tremendous resistance uh, and the resistance became more and more intense. And the resistance was not only in uh, Palestine against the, the domination, uh, the, the colonization. They called it the Mandate of Palestine, which is just a, a polite term for colony. But in Iraq, you can go through year after year after year. There were revolts every year in Iraq, in some part of Iraq, against the British rule. And that would last all the way up until 1958 when the king was thrown out and the British were thrown out of Iraq. But in Palestine, it grew to a rebellion that took place in 1936. In 1936, there was, uh, the struggle had really intensified. There was a general strike in Palestine that was violated, of course, by the Zionists, and, and it was directed against the Zionists and the British, primarily against the British. And the Zionist side was armed by the British, the Palestinian side, after the end of the six-month general strike, armed struggle began. And that armed struggle would last for two and a half years. There's a great pamphlet about that by Ghassan Kanafani called The Great Arab Revolt of 1936 to 39. And this is a very important aspect. And it showed the Palestinians did not have a party. They didn't have a National Liberation Party per se. But they fought very, very determinedly for all this period of time. But in 1939, they were crushed. The rebellion was crushed. It became illegal for Palestinians to possess a knife, uh, much less a gun. Mm. Uh, a lot of people were hung by the British, a lot of Palestinians. The Zionists had gotten stronger in their alliance with the British and then would send troops into World War II, which began in 1939. And that also helped make them much stronger. And this is a very important aspect of what was going to happen in 1947-48, because the Zionists were heavily funded. They were well armed. They had military training. They had some contradictions with the British, to be sure, because the British didn't really care about their aspirations and were trying to keep their empire together. But basically... There was a, a great, great gulf that opened up in terms of the strength of the Zionist population and military on the one hand and the Palestinians. And some people say, well, look, the whole area was surrounded by the you know, Arab states. The supporters of Israel like to say Israel was in a sea of Arabs, a kind of a racist term too. But they, the reality was that all of those countries were either still colonies of Britain in France, or they had just recently emerged from colonialism, like three or four years earlier, in the case of Lebanon and Syria, and they were not strong. They were not strong. They did not have strong militaries, and they did not have strong leadership. So the, the idea that some of the supporters of Israel like to say that, you know, this is some kind of miracle, maybe it was divine intervention that enabled the <laughs> Israelis to, to succeed. But of course, that's more of the mythology. Right. Well, I'm in conversation with Richard Becker, author of the second edition of his book, Palestine, Israel, and U.S. Empire. Richard, an interesting conversation I had one time at a party, actually, was about racism and anti-Semitism. The Jewish person in the conversation was asked about the most anti-Semitic place, and they said London. They said London, England. I was surprised. When we hear about the conflict in the in West Asia, it's always 
the Palestinians that are painted with this brush as if they hate all Jews, want to kill all Jews. And in addition to the these narratives not stressing the the peaceful nature of Palestine before Zionism, it it shifts all this weight of anti-Semitism to Palestinian people. Yeah, and I, I think the way that anti-Semitism is used is and is continually being used is to get people to shut up and particularly to get people who support express any support for the Palestinians to shut up. The wielding of and the weaponizing of anti-Semitism, which is now at, at the most extreme level inside the United States, like you have the ADL, for instance, and the reporting that thousands and thousands of anti-Semitic actions have taken place in the last, just in the last year. And yet, if you actually look at their, the data, a lot of those, in fact, I think the vast majority of those so-called acts of, of anti-Semitism are actually acts of solidarity with the Palestinian people right. who are today suffering genocide in Gaza. And even today in the media, there's a report, there was an incident where Palestinians, three Palestinians, attacked some soldiers in the West Bank, and the one soldier was killed, and that's what's featured. The three Palestinians were also killed, but that's not in the headline. And it's always presented in the way that you just suggested, is that it's a product of uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish hatred on the part of the Palestinians. And I think in relation to our book and the the second edition of which has just come out, is that it's a resource for activists. And it explains, I think, in a way that's kind of undeniable that what happened is not that complicated. The Palestinians were thrown out of their land in 1948. The, great, the majority of Palestinians, they were driven into refugee camps for a while. They lived only in tents despite the freezing weather. And then they have been living in densely populated camps. And in Gaza, many, many refugee camps, virtually all the people there are refugees from somewhere else. And now they're being bombed. And the pilots are not some heroic figures. The Israeli pilots face no opposition when they go in, fly over uh, densely populated apartment buildings and drop 2,000 pound bombs on them. Isn't that terrorism? I ask people that all the time. Isn't that terrorism? No, not in the U.S. media. It's not terrorism. And you'd hear them over and over again that the brutal attack by the Palestinians, but the Israeli attacks are never called brutal, even when they're genocidal, as we see them now. So I think like the purpose of labeling people, of smearing activists as being anti-Semitic is meant to frighten other people not to even think about the issue. Don't look at this issue because this is... If you happen to veer away from the support Israel position, you could find yourself in a lot of trouble. You could be doxxed. You could have, you know, people coming to your home. You could lose your job. I mean, that's the idea. So it's a kind of a terrorist strategy itself by the supporters of Israel here. But the purpose of it really is to get people not to even think about the issue at all. Just accept what's being said in the mainstream media and go along with it. Right. That's that's precisely what it's about to to shut us up and to uh, make people afraid of of telling their truth and kind of being rooted in history as opposed to uh, propaganda or the Hasbara of Israel. 
I just had a couple more questions. There's a, a black activist, Sean King, founder, one of the founders of the Grassroots Law Project, who was kicked off of Instagram recently. He had millions of followers, if not tens of millions, I think. And even though his posts about the genocide happening in Gaza were very impactful and really got the attention of these the corporate Zionists at Meta, it was ultimately his support for the resistance by Yemen in terms of the naval blockade on ships going into Israel that Meta says finally got him kicked off the platform. He was deplatformed. He lost his account. They won't let him back on. You can kind of see maybe some posts from him through other organizations or whatever, but his individual account was banned. And so I want to get your take on the Palestinian resistance or the resistance forces fighting on behalf of Palestine, because what the U.S. wants to do now is paint all all the resistance as terrorists. Yeah, you know, that's very true. And from the beginning of the Zionist project and right up through the time of the creation of the state of Israel, it was clear that the Zionist leaders wanted to exclude, expel the indigenous population from the land. And that remains true today. That's the ultimate objective. That's what Netanyahu wants. And his aides who are fascists, Smotrich and Ben Gavir and some of the others, uh, they're in the most powerful positions in the government and this is what they're trying to do. And for Palestinians, aside from those who are in armed resistance or even those who participate in protest, but many, many people refuse to leave. And I think that, that, you know, we we know of heroism, you know, there's the heroism of someone runs into a burning building and rescues a child. But I think the Palestinians display a different kind of heroism, and it's a heroism of steadfastness, of refusing to leave, even though the Zionist regime, the Israeli regime, the occupation makes life miserable or tries to make life miserable for you every day whether it means being harassed, going to work, having to go through checkpoints, uh, being humiliated, seeing your friends, your children go to prison with no charges against them. You know, this is an apartheid regime that exists there. You can't say that in the U.S. either, in the U.S. mainstream media. But there's no question it's an apartheid regime. So all of the constant harassment, and yet the great majority of the Palestinian population has refused to leave. They don't want to leave Gaza. They know what it means to leave, that those who left in 1948, you know, that same December of that year, the UN passed a resolution 194 saying that all the Palestinian refugees must be allowed to return and they must be compensated for their losses. And down to today, not one has ever been allowed back. And those in Gaza know that as horrible as the situation is, and some people want to leave because they want to survive, of course, but... Many, many, many hundreds of thousands of people do not want to leave and are determined not to leave because they know that getting back, coming back is going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible. Right. And then finally, on that same line of conversation, the whole issue about the state of Palestine, because my understanding is that over the decades, the idea of a two state solution had almost become a joke among diplomatic circles. They knew it wasn't going to happen. They knew that Benjamin Netanyahu was 
determined that it would not happen, that there would not be an independent state. And the veto of resolution after resolution by the United States allowed these settlements to take over so much of the occupied West Bank. And so now I hear other people say, well, you know, there can't be a two state solution, obviously. It's it's too gone too far and that can't happen. So we need one democratic Palestine that has equal rights for all, no apartheid. And quite frankly, both of these scenarios are confusing to me because of the rabid extremism, mainly of the Israeli population and the fact that so much dispossession, death, colonization, ethnic cleansing, apartheid has happened. I don't know about either option. I just want to get your opinion. <clears throat> well, I think you're right. And I, I think it's really hard to see how either of those manifestations comes into being now. I mean, I think what all progressive people hope for, would hope for would be a democratic state. And for a lot of people like myself, a, a democratic socialist state uh, with equal rights for all people. But that's not the direction things are going in, if we're realistic. Not only is the Israeli population overwhelmingly racist, but the younger part of the population is even more racist. And their favorite chant is death to the Arabs. And they've been out protesting. They've been out, you know, blocking the food trucks from coming into Gaza. And then right. the, the IDF, or really we should call the IOF, the Israeli Occupation Forces, stand by and say, well, what can we do? Right. So, I mean, it's, it's clear that's a, that's just a joke. And once in a while, they push them aside and let the trucks through. But this is a real, I think the bottom line is we have to support self-determination for the Palestinian people. And the outcome mm -hmm. has to be, it, uh, of course, is up to the Palestinian people. I read the Oslo Accord, which is a very painful process and really extremely dull but extremely revealing back when it came into being in 1993. And it governed every aspect of Palestinian life, like how many pounds of melons you could, could be exported to Jordan. And I mean, just everything imaginable. And there were those who thought, well, this is the big step. And within five years, there'll be a Palestinian state. But I don't think the Israelis ever intended that. And recently, Israeli historians have shown that as early as uh, two or three days after the June 6th war, where West Bank, Gaza, Golan, East Jerusalem, Sinai were annexed by Israel or were taken over. The conversation at the highest level of the cabinet in Israel was, how can we annex the land, but not annex the people who live on the land? In other mm. words, how can we get rid of them? Wow. That might be a good place to stop. And it certainly gives us a lot to think about for those of us who are in the streets in solidarity with the Palestinian people, the people of Gaza right now, the people of Rafa and all of us who are, you know, communications workers, cultural workers trying to cover this genocide, you know, this horrific uh, moment in history that we find ourselves in where most of us have never seen anything like this. And uh, we're all trying to figure out how we can best uh, be in solidarity and, and join the resistance for a free Palestine. But I want to thank um, my guest, Richard Becker. He's the author of 
Palestine, Israel, and U.S. Empire, and he just released a second edition of his book uh, from 1804 Books. And many of us also know Richard as the West Coast coordinator of the Answer Coalition, which has been coordinating some of these massive rallies that we have here in Washington. And we actually have another one coming up on March 2nd uh, to free Rafa, hands off Rafa, to just support the people of Rafa and and end this occupation, the siege and uh, these attacks. So thank you, Richard, for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. That's at On the Ground Show on Facebook or X Twitter and Patreon. The podcast is On the Ground with Esther Averam on all your podcast platforms. And please subscribe. You can write us at contact at onthegroundshow.org. And I'll link to every show on my Instagram page, which is Esther underscore Averam. That's I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. You know, the Free Palestine Movement is continuing with actions. The next global day of action is Saturday, March 2nd. And, and that's for Hands Off Rafa. You can follow continuing actions at shutitdownforpalestine.org and at answercoalition.org. The music we played this hour included Masters of War by Bob Dylan, Checkpoint by Jaziri X, What Rough Beasts by Burnt Sugar Orchestra Chamber, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.